So we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 4, and we're moving on from uh, verse 12 through to verse 17. I'm going to read it. Uh, I'm reading from the NLT, which might be slightly different from yours. When Jesus heard that John, the, sorry, that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee, uh, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who live in the land where, sorry, where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm going to be repeating so many times, I'm not going to apologize for the repetition because I think it's so important. Here again, we see Jesus fulfilling the plan of his Father. Yeah, Jesus moved and lived and did everything that had been written 700 years previous by the prophets, and it was recorded, and Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus' life was not about fulfilling his own plans. It was all about doing what the Father wants him to do. And that raises a really good question for us. Whose plans are you fulfilling in your life? You know, Jocelyn and I, we, <coughs> we, we sit down every so often, we get to talk. You know, what it's like with children, you're talk, talking about all kinds of stuff. But we, we, we chat and we work things through and we're constantly challenged by how much and how well we are fulfilling what God wants us to do. This is not a practice run. You have one life. Let me tell you, you have one life and after that comes judgment, we're told in Hebrews. And so we've got one life and are we doing what God wants us to do? And one of the things we've noticed is as you get older and you build a family, it becomes more costly. You know, when I was, um, how old was I? 19, God called me into ministry. Well, it was dead easy. I just had to pack up where I was and go. When God said, go to India, yeah, pack up and go. Then I got married, and then Jocelyn was pregnant, and God said, come back to the UK. Well, well that was a little bit harder, because she then was pregnant, child was on its way, that was Zoe. But we're saying, are we still open to God saying to us, I want you to do something else? And I think, well, we'd have to take the kids out of school. We'd have to do this, that, and the other. But we're still up for it. We are still up for God saying to us, this is what I want you to do. And I want to challenge you today. It is not about your comfort. It is not about fulfilling your plan in this life. It's about fulfilling what God has already said is going to happen. We have the privilege of being those people who are part in fulfilling what God had promised 2,000 plus years ago, maybe 4,000 years ago, the things he said he would do. We could be those people. But it means we need to say, hey, Lord, I'm here. 
And as Jesus said, and as the Lord's Prayer says, not my will, but your will, not our kingdom, but your kingdom. <coughs> and so I want to challenge you to say, Lord, I want to fulfill your purposes. Now, how do we do that? Well, the really simple thing is you've got to give God time. You read the Bible, you spend time in prayer, you pray through these things, and God will show you what you need to do. One of the big ones for me is that when things need to change, I lose the peace in what I'm doing. And then God begins to open another way, another door, and as I test that, God begins to bring peace in, in, in what you're doing. And you know then God is shifting. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy I remember when we, you know, we had just moved from South India to Northeast India. We'd moved all of our stuff, you know, like 1,500 miles. And then two months later, God says, hey, it's time to go. But we knew it was the right thing. God places it in your heart. And so I want to really speak to you and say, make sure that you are fulfilling what God wants to do. Don't get sucked in to the world's idea of life, which, if, if I'm honest, is all based around money and entertainment. And so we see Jesus here. At the start of his ministry, he begins to preach. This is verse 17. And he says this, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this message would have had a very familiar tone to all the people listening. <coughs> they would have said, we've heard this before. And they would be right. Because John the Baptist came, and he was preparing the way for Jesus, and he had exactly the same message, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I want to spend a moment to look at what this means, because this is Jesus' message. I find it amazing that in one sentence, Jesus can encapsulate his whole message. So what do we mean by repent? Well, I have this amazing Bible software that gives me Greek and Hebrew. It gives me the lexicon and all those things. And it has this special lexicon called the Bible Sense Lexicon. And it says this. It says, repent means to reconsider. To have a change of self, that is the heart and mind, that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and regret over former behavior and dispositions. Dispositions are our outlook in life and how we do things. Let me repeat that. Repent is to reconsider. To have a change of self, that is the heart and mind, that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, a new behavior, and regret over former behavior and dispositions. What an amazing description of repentance. The problem is that over the last 100, 150 years, for many people, repentance simply means saying sorry. Hey, I go to a church, and when they talk about repenting of sin, I put my hand up, yes, I'm sorry. Now, that is included in that, because we see that it has this word of regret over our former behavior, but that's not the whole meaning. We do need to be sorry when we understand that the things we do 
are in disobedience to God and we're sinning against God. We'll talk about sin in a minute. But being sorry is only part of the process of repentance. A change of behavior and a change of disposition is expected. Let me repeat that. God expects change. You know, I, I noticed, I grew up in the, the church. When I was 16, I made this decision to follow Jesus. And all through my time in church, there was an expectation that if somebody said they're going to follow Jesus, you would see a change in the way they lived. And that change is a demonstration of real repentance. For some people, repentance is giving a mental assent to Jesus' teaching. You say to people, it's, it's quite ironic, you can go up to a believer and you can say, um, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Do you believe his teachings? Yes. Well then, why are you having sex outside of marriage? Oh, well that's okay. Everybody does it. You know, but they say they agree. I agree with what the Bible says, but then they live in a way that the Bible says we're not to live. I mean, whether we like it or not, we can't hate people. It's very tempting sometimes, isn't it? When people do nasty things to you. I imagine for Lois, the experience she went through, it's very easy to hate someone. We've all had experience where people have done bad things, and yet the Bible says, love your enemy. And so the challenge is not just saying, yeah, I, I agree with what's in there. The thing is, we need to apply it and live by it. There's loads of stuff I'd like to watch on TV, but when I filter it through the Ten Commandments and when I filter it through all the other stuff, there's maybe two or three things left. And they're all cartoons. The challenge is that if we are repenting, <coughs> if we have repented, there is a change that comes. And let me tell you, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner with this message, he had a very similar understanding of repentance because in, in chapter 3, if you want to go back to chapter 3 and verse 8, he says this, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Wow. Now think about who did John the Baptist say that to? He said it to all the religious leaders. I mean, it's nuts, isn't it? Those who had the Bible or those who had the Old Testament who knew it off by heart, John the Baptist had to say, hey guys, you think because you know it, you're okay. I'm telling you, you need to prove you know it by the way that you live. And Jesus picks up that message. Jesus comes and says, hey guys, you need to repent. Need to repent and turn away from the things that God calls sin. We need to put into practice what we read in the Bible. And you know what? Once we do that, everybody will see it. They say, man, you're different. You know, the number of people over the years, I used to work in engineering, and if you've ever worked in engineering, engineering is a pretty foul-mouthed place. But when people became Christians, people said, man, you're so different. You don't swear anymore. You don't look at the dirty calendars anymore. You don't do this and that and the other. Why? Because repentance brings a change in the way that we live. 
I mean, a similar example is that, you know, you have a heart attack, you go to hospital, you have a heart bypass, and they say, if you want to avoid this, then you need to start doing X, Y, and Z. And people say, yeah, I'm doing X, Y, and Z. Because they've realized the way they lived before has caused damage, and they need to change that and live in a different way. Could probably talk to Lois again about people with diabetes and stuff. Need to change. We need to be different. You know, our heart, mind, and disposition need to change. That we no longer do things that, that God calls sin, but that we actively pursue what Jesus says is good for us to do. Now, this understanding, it's not popular. You know, we're told today that we should accept everybody's lifestyle. Yeah? In fact, if somebody applies for a job, their lifestyle cannot be held against them. What's the result of that? Well, the result of that, we now have people in positions of power who have no integrity and no character whatsoever. Why? Because you're not allowed to have that reference anymore. What they do at home is no bearing on their work. Duh. And so God expects us to be different kinds of people. Here is the challenge, and this will probably shock you a bit. Jesus does not accept everyone's lifestyle. Now, we used to sing this song, Just As You Are, Come, and there is truth in that, but that doesn't mean he's going to accept the way that you live. You can come as you are, but repentance means you're then going to make a change and you're going to turn away from it. And so repentance in its essence is that we do not live how the world lives. We do not do the things the Bible says we shouldn't do, but we do the things that Jesus said, this is what I want you to do. So the first thing we will be as students of the Bible so that we know what we should be doing. Now, let me move on to talking about sin for a moment. Sin, again, is a very unpopular word. It's not something that people want. But let me explain for a moment. Sin, for many people, is understood to be the society's moral values or even our personal values. That is not sin. Sin is not measured by the laws of our land. It is not measured by what's acceptable in society. It's not measured by what you think it's right. It is measured purely by what God deems to be right. Sin only ever relates to God. If we look again at the Bible sense lexicon on sin, it says this, an act or feeling that transgresses something forbidden or ignores something required by God's law or character, whether in thought, feeling, speech, or action. Wow, there's no get-out clause there, is there? An act or feeling that transgresses something forbidden or ignores something required <coughs> by God's law or character, whether in thought, feeling, speech, or action. Sin is set by God's standard. He tells us what is sin. So we have laws in the land that says people can get divorced, no fault, etc. You divorce except for biblical reasons. The Bible says it's sin. 
In our society, people don't even get married. They're living together. People have sex indiscriminately with, with different people. All of that, all of the sexual immorality, that is sin. Our society may accept it, but God does not. That includes whether we pay our taxes. We're supposed to be paying them. The Bible says we should. That means that we don't lie. That means we repent when we know that we've done something wrong. God's standard determines how we live and God's standard determines what is right and what is wrong. And the world can yell blue, you know, they're blue in the face and say to us that no, 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 our standards are there. No, God's not interested in that because our world is corrupt. Our legislation has loads of corrupt stuff in it. It's got loads of immoral things that are allowed that God says, this is not right. And so sin is not determined by individuals or communities. It's not determined by society or government. God sets the standard. And the challenge is that over the years, as humanity drifts further and further from God's values, People will come along, you know, I've heard this so many times in the last 20 years of people come and say, well, I live like this, will God accept me? And I say, that's the wrong question. It's not whether God will accept you, it's whether you will accept God, and that means you've got to change the way you live. You've got to change that. You know, in immigration, when people come to the UK, they are expected to pass the UK exam, which tells them how we live in the UK. If they do not do that, they are not allowed to be here. And when they are here, they're expected to follow the rules. Well, if people want God in their life, then they're going to have to change. God is not going to change. The number of people say, well, is God going to accept me? He says, he will if you change. I say, well, I don't want to change. I say, well, then that's your choice. But God's not going to change. His values are set. And let me tell you, before people think, well, that's not very nice, the reason God's values are set is because all the stuff that is sin is detrimental to the mind, the spirit, and the body, and society, and community, and families. It, it destroys all of those things. If you want to trace back all the hassles we have with single-parent households and all those things, they come back from the 1960s and 70s when we said, let's have a no-fault divorce. Oh, no, that's too much. You know, when I married Jocelyn, I made a commitment. I stood before God and said, uh, in sickness and in health, for richer and poor, poorer, in, um, until death is to part, I made a commitment. And God expects me to hold to that. Not to say, oh, look, there's a, a younger model over there. Let's run off quickly. No. I've given my word and God expects me to stick with that word. And sometimes, I know you'll find this hard to believe, but sometimes we argue. I know, I know you're laughing because you think, how can Simon and Jocelyn argue? But you know what? We, we get through it. You know, I, I remember, sorry for sharing this, darling. Just put your hands here. You know, Jocelyn is an... Jocelyn is an Indian Indian, and by that I mean she grew up and lived in India for 30 years before she came here. And I'm a German, British, whatever it is, mixture of, of stuff. And so when we got married, there were two cultures getting together. 
And within the Indian culture, there were, were Westerners marrying Indians, but they weren't faithful. They just disappeared off when it got tough. And I remember that, you know, we were trying to bring these two cultures together and there was some friction there and Jocelyn would never ever engage in the discussion and it used to annoy me. And one day she turned around and said to me, will you ever leave me? I thought, well, where did that come from? And then it dawned on me that she had seen a society where people do that. The Westerners come and then they shoot off. And we had a conversation. I said, you know, you can throw things at me. You can uh, shoot bullets at me or whatever. But nothing will ever cause us to end in divorce. We, we're in this room called marriage. And that is we work it out. And we can punch one another and we can whatever. But uh, divorce is not an option. And that changed how we then related. Because we knew we were safe in the commitment that we had made that nothing would change. That God would help us through. And we, we always went back to what God said. God said this was the right thing to do. And so I want to say to you, God does not change. The, the, the things God has said in Scripture 2,000 years ago, He put it into play. Before that, it was already there in the Old Testament. It does not change for no one. And I know it's hard because living a good life is difficult. You'll find that out. You know, I remember I came back from India and I was walking down the road in the UK and I was a bit unused to it. I'd been in India for eight and a half years and things had changed. And I saw this, this elderly lady walking down the road with heavy bags of shopping. I thought, I'll go over and give her a hand. And as I went nearer, all I saw was a look of fear on her face and I went somewhere else. I thought, wow, you can't do that anymore. And the thing is, we have created a society that has rejected God's stuff. Say, oh, we don't want God's commands. And what have we gained instead? Well, we've gained the world that we're in. Where kids get stabbed to death in the bus. Where people get shot. God does not change. He expects us to change. And if we want to follow God, he expects us to change our values and he will not accept whatever particular sin that we have. He won't accept it. And so you need to deal with this. Anyone who comes to God must repent. The thing that I love about the message of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, it starts with the same word, repent. And the Bible tells us where there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. Think about that for a minute. Where there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness of sin. God, this might, might strike you as odd, God cannot just forgive sin. Did you know that? He can't just do that. Because he's a just God. And because he's a just God, it means justice must be served. Now there's an illustration, you've probably heard this a thousand times before, but think for a moment that um, uh, a mother becomes a judge and she sits in court as a judge. And she has a daughter who goes to a school who does, sets a school on fire. So she now appears before the judge who is her mother. Now her mother can't say, oh, it's you. That's okay. I know who you are. I love you. You're free to go. That's not justice. Justice is 
you've caused this damage, you now need to pay the bill. You have to pay £200,000 or you go to prison. Justice has been served. But she then gets off the judgment seat. She goes down on the floor where she's the same as anybody else. She gets a checkbook out. She writes £200,000 and it's paid. That's what Jesus has done for us. You see, God understands that we have a proclivity to sin. You know, do you ever, do you ever wonder sometimes where these thoughts come from? We have sometimes some horrible thoughts. And it's because we have a sinful nature. We have a nature within us that has been corrupted by disobedience. And therefore, it issues forth things that are not good. And so, God needs to change that. And he says, in my justice, I punish sin because I am a righteous God. And what he did is he sent his son who willingly came and Jesus committed no sin, so he did not need to die. But he died in our place to take all of the sin of the whole world upon himself. And the Bible says, and whoever chooses to believe in him and to repent, they will be forgiven. And so the difference between somebody following Jesus who is saved and somebody who isn't is not that they're good, it's but that they have repented and put their faith in Jesus. That's the only difference. Because folks come in and think, oh, church, they're all goody two-shoes. No, they're not. We're all a bunch of sinners. But we've done something about it. I was talking with a youth on Friday and we were looking at the difference between Christianity and all other religions. And the difference is one simple thing, how they deal with sin. Every other religion, when you talk to them about sin, they have a hope that if they can balance it so they do more good than bad, they'll be accepted into heaven. It doesn't work like that. You can't save the lives of ten people and then murder five people and go to the judge. Well, look, there are ten people better off. Say, no, what you've done wrong needs punishment. And so what God has done is he has made a way through, Jesus has taken that punishment, but we must choose to believe. And if I was to ask you today, what is the greatest gift that God has given? We'd probably say Jesus, okay. But what is the second greatest gift that God has given? The answer is really simply this, free choice. God has given every human being free will. You can choose what you do. And God, I mean, this amazes me, God has the power to destroy the world like this, but he doesn't do it because he gives us the free will to choose how we will live. Now, the challenge is that we will answer for that choice. He'll say, hey, Simon, what did you choose? And if I choose, well, I want to live how I want to live. He says, that's fine, but in my justice now, you are going to answer for every wrong thing that you have done. Every sin you've committed, you will now pay for. And the punishment for sin is an eternal separation from God. God will not have anybody in his presence who is sinful because he is holy and they would be destroyed by his presence. But there are others on the planet who recognize they're not perfect, who recognize they do wrong things, say, Jesus, I recognize and I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that. I repent of my sin and I now live a life that is to please you, not myself. They're the ones who get into heaven. Their sin is forgiven. They're not any better than anybody else, but it's the decision they made with their free will that changes everything. 
God will never impose his, his, what he's done on your life. He'll never impose the salvation of Jesus on you. He gives you an invitation and says, but you need to take it with your free will. I find that mind-blowing. He is not a coercive God. He's not a manipulative God. He says, I have done everything possible, and now the choice is up to you. Every human being since the time of Jesus who's ever lived has had the choice to believe in Jesus, to repent, to change the way they live, and to live for God. That choice is theirs. Well, they can reject that. But at the end of days, when we die and we stand before God's judgment seat, the books are open and everything we've done will have to be answered for. And so God's intention is not that we perish. God's intention is that we are saved. Let me read two scriptures. 1 Peter 2.24 says, this is talking about Jesus, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds we are healed. So it's not just about forgiveness, it's about living and doing what is right. And then Ephesians 2.5, that even though we were dead because of our sins, Jesus gave us life, uh, sorry, God gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And then in Ezekiel, we have a universal rule. God says this, for all people are mine to judge. Why? He owns the world. He made it. Both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. And so every human being has this choice. But because God has made a way, God is demonstrating that he wants to save us. I love Acts 17, 30. It says this, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. So we know this is Jesus Christ. So God is there, and he says it's time. Now you may think this is a heavy message, but let's be honest, if we don't sound a clear message, what will, you know, people won't know what to do. And so I want to say to you today that, you know, God has done everything possible. If God did not love us, he would not have sent Jesus. So the demonstration is that God recognizes sin, but he loves us more. And he has made a way through, but we need to do something about that. We need to say, I'm going to turn away and I'm going to live. I'm going to turn away from sin. I'm going to live the life that God wants us to live. If we choose God, he releases to us every promise that we can find in the Bible. He brings his protection and care, his love and his grace. God wants us to have the best possible kind of life. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, sadly he's gone to glory now, but he always issued this challenge to people. He said, if you can find a better way to live your life than Jesus taught in the Bible, go for it absolutely go for it. If you can find a better way to live than Jesus said in the Bible, you go for it. But I tell you this, you will not find it. Because all the things we don't like to do, we know are actually the right things to do. 
How many of us know that even though we like the cake, that eating the cake every day is not going to result in the best kind of life? And we like to sit on the sofa with a nice blanket and the fire on and the TV on and outside the weather's not so good. But we know if we don't go outside and we don't exercise and we don't walk and don't do stuff, our body will begin to pack up. We don't get the best kind of life. There are things we know we need to do. And in the Bible, all of the stuff on sexual immorality, all the stuff on relationships, all the stuff about how we live in the world, how we interact with the world... If we all live like that, we will have the best kind of life and other people will be jealous. They'll look and say, man, you're at peace. How do you do that? And not only that, God will pour his blessing into your life. And so the challenge today is that we've come to Matthew chapter 4 and we've heard Jesus' message and his message is simply repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when we live the kind of life God tells us to, we begin to move into his kingdom, and in his kingdom everything is possible. Healing, uh, forgiveness, release from oppression, power, it's all there. Let's pray.